This is the MagicWordPodcast.com. Hello and Happy New Year. This is Scott Wells for the MagicWordPodcast.com. Well, we are starting into the new year of 2023, and I thought it a good idea if we kick it off by actually starting where the time zones actually begin, down under, down in New Zealand and Australia. And in fact, one of the things I had asked for earlier were for people to submit their holiday greetings uh, via SpeakPipe, which is uh, available. There's a link there on the magicwordpodcast.com where you can leave your messages uh, to me if you have a suggestion on uh, who you would like to uh, see or hear on upcoming episodes. You can always leave messages there or anything else that you want to have as a shout out there. You certainly can. Well, to begin with, it was kind of interesting and timely because this week we are going to have a couple of gentlemen who will be talking with us from Australia. But we have uh, first, I want to introduce uh, Evelyn Strugnall from New Zealand, who has a message to give us from down there. Yes. Hi, Scott. It's Evelyn Strugnall from New Zealand speaking. Enjoy your podcast. Thank you very much indeed. And do have a happy new year. Thank you, Evelyn, for your greeting. And also, I wish you and all of the listeners a very happy, prosperous and healthy new year as we go into 2023. During this past year of 2022, we have lost several of our friends in our magic community. And if you go to themagicwordpodcast.com, I have a listing of many people who are friends and those many of whom have uh, whose voices have you can hear here on the Magic Word Podcast or have over the years. And you can go back and listen to them then again. There is a list of uh, many people there as well as links to past podcasts, easy for you to go back and uh, and to listen. I call that the uh, Magicians of Valhalla, so we will be seeing them again sometime in the future. And so if you will, just uh, go over there and take a look. I post these uh, each year uh, in the first blog of each new year. Again, the Magicians of Valhalla, just go to themagicwordpodcast.com, and there you can see the uh, few dozen names of people who have passed, some who you may have forgotten who have left us this year, and others uh, you know very well who were very highly respected. Some people were not necessarily as well known to you, but it would uh, bear looking into and finding out who they were because they were very important members of our magic community and their presence in our community will be missed. Well, there are a lot of things that uh, we have to discuss up here real quickly. I want to point out that, of course, uh, we're going to be having the first convention I'll be attending will be the Magi Fest coming up in Columbus, Ohio. I know that many of you plan to attend. Golly, in the past, they have had well over a thousand people. But during the uh, past couple of years, they have either had it as a virtual convention or they have had the attendance uh, limited. But this year, I'm not sure how many that they have planned. But I do know that the hotels have been sold out. And I do have a room, but I'm also looking for a roommate in case somebody out there is planning on attending and would like to uh, share expense for a room. Uh, just drop me an email, scott at themagicwordpodcast.com, and let me know if you're interested in, in being a roommate with me. I'm staying at the nearby hotel, not at the hosting hotel, but if you have one room in the hosting hotel, that'd be great, and I'll cancel my other one. But anyhow, drop me a note, see if we can uh, get together. That'd be great, and we can spend some time, and I will be recording the podcast and so I might be up a little bit late putting these things together. Uh, aside from that, there are other things going on, specifically when we spoke with Seth Kramer, and that was posted last week. We mentioned there was a 
contest that he was offering a copy of one of two copies for his Modern Trade Show Handbook. Well, we are going to run that yet for another week. As I mentioned last week, we're going to run that for two weeks, so we're still running this week. I want to mention to you up front here, if you have not yet entered the contest, you still have a week to go before we close up that contest. So be sure to enter soon and only one entry per person. And also it is for anybody in the world can enter. However, it will be posted paid domestically if you reside in the U.S. If you're outside the U.S., then postage will be calculated and you'll be required then to pay for the foreign postage. But if you'd like not to pay that, then we will just draw another name. I think you get the idea. But go to themagicwordpodcast.com where you will see that registration form and you can fill it out put your name, and don't forget to put your name. Some people have just put their email address, and I've had to send emails out to everybody saying, hey, I also need to have your name on there then as well. So be sure to give me your name and your email address. Well, as we go into this week, we have not one, but two different uh, magicians we'll be talking to in Australia. One is Tim Ellis, and the other one is Nicholas J. Johnson. Uh, I have talked with Tim on a few occasions in the past. In fact, I had a dedicated episode to him about a year ago that you can go back and listen to that, where we talk exclusively, just uh, the two of us. But in this particular episode, we are joined then by Nicholas J. Johnson, who is uh, also a podcaster. He has a podcast called Scamapalooza, which I would recommend if you're interested in scams and cons that you can go back and listen to some of the podcasts of people he talks with about this interesting subject. Also, he is a noted writer and a well-known writer. In fact, I was going to post some links on the website for you to purchase this through Amazon, but they're not available. The books are sold out. So I don't think he has got those as digital editions quite yet, but uh, he is, a again, a noted writer as well as a podcaster and a magician. Well, this week we are going to explore 10 different what we would call magic myths of uh, things that perhaps we as magicians have held dear to our hearts as being truisms, and they may or may not necessarily be truths. It's uh, getting up to interpretation, and so we discuss them in great detail this week. And although there are only 10 different myths that we had discussed, if you have something that you would like to hear us talk about in a future episode, please drop an email to me at scott at themagicwordpodcast.com. And if we uh, get enough responses and enough suggestions, uh, we will have then another episode in which we will go back and explore those myths too. Uh, One last thing, and that is we recorded this conversation, uh, not only audibly, but also we recorded on video. So you can watch this on YouTube. So if you'll go to our YouTube channel there at uh, Texas Magician or Scott Wells Magic, you can find that. Or if you just go to the website at themagicwordpodcast.com, there you can click on the video that will take you to uh, that, and you can see the three of us talking there on YouTube then as well. Anyhow, let's get going. Uh, That's enough of me. Let's hear from them. So now, please welcome my guests, Mr. Tim Ellis and Nicholas J. Johnson from Australia, here on The Magic Word. Today's episode is going to take us down under, in which we're going to be talking about uh, myth busting uh, in 
our art, in our community. We have a lot of things that we accept as truisms and some things perhaps that, that aren't or shouldn't be. And we've just identified a few of them. And this was something that came up as a suggestion by a good friend of mine uh, down in Australia, Melbourne, Australia, uh, Tim Ellis. And Tim and I usually get together each year at the 4F convention or as often as he can actually get over here. I haven't been over to Australia, but once myself. But anyhow, I, he is all over the place doing a lot of cruise ships and uh, touring the world. And so he might be in your neck of the woods sometime soon, particularly if you take a cruise out of Tahiti here soon, you might be able to see him soon because he's got to be doing that. Then he was bringing to my attention then uh, another gentleman who is a friend of his and now a friend of mine. And he's going to tell you a little bit about his background. And that's Nicholas Johnson. So let me welcome both of you guys in right now. Hey, Tim. And hey, Nicholas, good to see you guys. Thank you so much for having us. And Tim? Yes, it's it's good to be back. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Ray. Also, Tim, a uh, while back during COVID, during the lockdown, you were one of my guests on our Magic of Martini. And I know you, of course, are in the future right now as we're talking. You're about uh, about 20 hours ahead of us over there. So you're kind of speaking from what's happening tomorrow. Oh, yes. You should see what Trump's going to say tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, no spoilers. No spoilers. No spoilers. <laughs> exactly. So, Nicholas, tell me a little bit about exactly what uh, you how you uh, come into this as far as what kind of magic you do. Yeah, so I, I grew up in the circus, but I also grew up in Canberra, which is the capital city of Australia, uh, which meant I've always had a, a, obviously a great love of magic, but also a great love of, of con artists and deception and, uh, and swindlers and, and being fascinated not just in how to fool people, but in why we get fooled and why we get scammed and why we make certain assumptions. So most of my work is, uh, is corporate and uh, I do a lot of work in, in schools and high schools talking about like obviously scam protection so you mm-hmm. can protect yourself online and so on but also uh just critical thinking skills you know how, how do we know what is true and what and, and what is not true i think magic is is a great way of of uh, exploring all of those deep, complex philosophical ideas. True, because ideas. magic is inherently false to begin with. You're purporting for it to be true when in reality that it's not. So you're scamming from the very beginning when you're saying we're going to show you something amazing, which it is, but we purport for that to be real and oftentimes it's not. Tim tells me that you are the preeminent expert over there when it comes to cons to uh, for people who come and talk with you. Yeah, so I get a lot of people. Uh, I, I get a lot of people getting in touch, just saying I've been scammed. I've I've given money to the wrong person, or can I trust this business deal? And uh, and so I help them. Usually, rather than telling them yes, they've been scammed, I instead talk them through the situation so they can figure out for themselves that they have been scammed. I found that that's that's really the best way to go about it. People don't like being told that they're wrong or that they've been fooled. Right, um, but they're usually quite happy to kind of um, discover that fact for themselves. So now, pickpocketing and all that is completely different. And outside of your realm, you particularly talk more just about where people talk their way into something as opposed to physically picking pockets or stealing. Th- that's right. Yeah, that's the distinction I make. Is people say, "Oh, don't don't steal," you know, "You're not going to steal my watch." And I said, "No, no, no, I'm not going to steal steal your watch. Uh, I'm going to talk you into giving it to me freely." But that's it. <laughs> that's I, what I mean, a con man does. Yeah. Exactly. That's right. For the very first con man was a man named uh, William William Thompson, and he was famous. This is a nineteenth century in New York, and he would walk up to people and uh, he would, you know, dress in his finest clothes and pretend that he knew them and strike up conversation, and they would be unsure, but eventually d- decide, yes, I know who this is. 
And then he would say, um, do you have confidence in me to lend me your watch until Tuesday? And people would say, oh, uh, yes, of course, I have confidence in you. That Yes, of course, because you're my good friend. And mm-hmm. they were, you know, completely unsure of who this person is, but too embarrassed to say something, they'd hand over their watch. And uh, the newspapers called him the confidence man, uh, which, is, which is where we get confidence man. And then um, Her- Herman Melville wrote the book, The Confidence Man, and that kind of put the term into common usage. And you now we have con artists and so on. Now, what about Soapy Smith? Was Soapy Smith a, uh, a con artist? Oh yeah, absolutely. One of the one of the greatest. Yeah, <laughs> but he Smith did is, he uh, precede that gentleman you're talking about from New York? Oh, I think so. Mm-hmm. So the, he was the. I mean, he I, I, he would have been. They would have called him a, a swindler uh, mm-hmm. rather than a rather than a con artist. So I'm talking more. You know, William Thompson was the first person to be called a confidence man, Understand. Or a con man. Yeah, so the name. So obviously, you know, we can go back thousands of years. We'll find <laughs> people uh, who are con artists. Um, but mm-hmm. um, you know, my favorite term for con artist is uh, is coney catcher or coney catcher, and it's so coney is you know it means rabbit. Um, that's why Coney Island is supposedly called Coney Island because of all the rabbits. And so a rabbit is someone who's been a, a, a Coney catcher, a Coney catcher is someone who can sort of catch these little innocent creatures, these little suckers. And so that was, it's kind of like 15th, 16th century. Because they were hard to catch, obviously. Yeah. Well, not so much they're hard to catch, but more that, um, that the, you know, cause they, so the, the, the the rabbits are like the suckers and, and they've kind of got that sort of oh. wide-eyed innocence that a bunny rabbit has. And so a, a, a coney catcher is someone who can can catch these little innocent creatures. Okay, and prey on their innocence. Or prey on yeah, their innocence, exactly. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I didn't mean to get twisted off on there, but I could spend the whole episode talking about cons. Oh, and, and I could spend the whole episode <laughs> talking about it. It's well, if the listeners are interested in that, please write in and let us know or leave your comments uh, on the website then as well. Send me an email. Scott at the magic word podcast.com or something. Let me know. I'll get back with Nicholas and we could do a, a whole episode on that with you. And there are several other people I know who specialize in, in cons as well that uh, might bring in or something. But uh, I think it's interesting to have uh, someone who, uh, with your expertise from out of the country to uh, to give me a different and unique perspective. So and Nicholas yeah. is also a best-selling author as well. A best-selling author. What, oh, yes. uh, what book or books? Yeah, so I've written two crime novels. Uh, one is called Chasing the Ace and the other is called Fast and Loose. And they're about a, a con artist, uh, here, a teenage con artist here in Australia. And it, the books are about the difference between how we perceive con artists in movies and books and how these, these kind of very clever romantic heroes, uh, anti-heroes, uh, and, and how they actually are in the real world, which mm-hmm. is very, very different. They're not Robert Redford in The Sting. You know, they're, they're very <laughs> different people. And so the book kind of explores that idea of, you know, we expect matchstick men and catch me if you can. And, and what we actually get is something very different. So it kind of reminds me a little bit of Derek Delgadio's book, An Immoral Man, uh, in which yes. he was talking about how that he had started and he was in these private homes where he was the dealer and cheating a little bit and conning people then. So, and that was really kind of the underbelly. So, and, but, but realistic in his case. So that's kind of what you're talking about, I guess. Yeah, that's right. And, and how, when people hear con artists, um, they usually think of, oh, I wish I was a con artist. You know, mm-hmm. I wish I had those skills and those abilities. And it's one of the few crimes where people are sort of 
a little bit envious. Like people would go, oh, I wish I was a murderer. You know, I wish I <laughs> wish I could break into people's houses. I wish yeah. I could do that. Um, but this idea of being a con artist is so romanticized by popular culture. And True. So, um, when the con- real con artists are, you know, pretty terrible people. Indeed they are. I've come across a couple and as we all have, and yeah, they're, they're not good people. Yeah. Well, Hey, let's, we got a, a, a lot of things to really talk about and uh, in, in busting some myths, as I said, and we have a list of 10 and not necessarily in any given order. There's not like a top tens, but uh, uh, I'm going to start with the first one over here that you had suggested to us, uh, Tim, and that is kids are the most honest audience. They were always honest with you. So I have always been told that always like ever since I started doing shows when I was like 10 or 12 years old, my mentors would always say, if you want to test it, your shows out, you want to see if the tricks are working, get in front of a group of kids because they will tell you. They're not afraid to tell you if your trick's not working. And I used to believe that. And I used to think, oh, well, that's, I, if I've got a new trick, I'll test out in front of the kids. But really, uh, kids working to kids is like working to a pack of drunks. You know, they're, <laughs> they're going to call stuff out whether they know it or not. They're, mm-hmm. they're, often they're there to uh, impress their friends, to show that, you know, I'm, I'm grown up and I'm not going to be fooled by that magician. So you're thinking, hey, I'm doing a really good trick there. And they're calling out, oh, I know how it's done. I know it's done. And your self-esteem is like, oh, I've got to make this trick better. But they're just, like Nicholas said, con artists. They're just scamming and <laughs> yelling out stuff. Like, you know, if you performed in front of a drunk group of people who just, hey, he's got it up his sleeve. That's not the same girl. No, so I, I find I find the the whole idea of kids being the most honest audience to be n- not really a useful piece of information. Mm-hmm. I think though it is. I think it's useful because kids are the most extreme type of audience. You know, they're not a subtle audience. You know, if you do a I don't know if I do a, a corporate function and the audience aren't that into it, they'll just um, clap their hands a little bit quieter and for a little bit less time um whereas if you perform for children and they're not enjoying it you you know you you can really see the reaction so i think what i think that they're they give useful feedback because their reactions are so extreme and hard to miss but it's just a matter of being able sorry you get the same feedback from drunks though (laughs) no because i think with drunks drunks are are um um the way people act when they're drunk isn't useful information. <laughs> Whereas with kids, you know, if a kid is saying, I know how you do that, I know how you do that, what they're saying, and any that they don't know how it's done or they do it, but what they're really saying to you is, is um, I'm feeling really a bit challenged. I'm feeling like you're putting me in my place and you're, you're making me feel, you want me to feel dumb or you want me to feel little and I want to feel big and powerful. So when I hear that from a child, my reaction is like, oh, how can I give this child what they want? How can I make them empower them and make them feel and make them feel good? So I think they're honest in the sense of, you know, they're not literally telling the truth necessarily, but they're honest in the sense of what they're giving us as an audience is really powerful. You know, it's really, um, it's useful and it's extreme and it's hard to miss. We've just got to know how to read them. But what well, age are you talking about also? Because it, uh, it, it's a matter of difference between, let's say, a five-year-old, 10-year-old, and 15-year-old. So if you're clumping them all in as kids, I mean, that there are some children who are shy. You've got to think about that, too. And there are others mm. who are beginning out as an alpha-type personality from the time that they pop out of the womb. And others are, you know, hiding under their mom's coattails. Yeah. But the, the, when I started doing the Zoom shows during pandemic, 
Uh, one thing I did discover was because I was trying to do different material every week, so yes. I'm burning through everything I can find, and there were family audiences watching. One thing I noticed was that the kids were just as engaged with the mentalism effects and the more complicated effects, you know, the, the things that you normally wouldn't say, I'm going to put this in a kid's show. Uh, and so after the pandemic finished, I started doing uh, more like my laneway theatre shows at schools. So instead of doing my Mad Hatter, which is an over-the-top broad kids' show, I would do a more subtle show with, you know, Fogel Invisible Debt Glance Magazine Test, um, some really, you know, intricate, what we would call adult material. But the kids were actually more engaged by that than um, the Mad Hatter stuff. They actually gave better reactions. So to some extent, what I found was that by treating the adult, the kids to adult material, mm -hmm. to material that wasn't necessarily encouraging them to go crazy and yell and scream. Mm -hmm. uh, like Nicholas said, not challenging them in that way, but more like you are very lucky to be watching this sort of, you know, that you don't normally get to see magic like this. We're bringing it to you. It's a very special occasion. Um, I found the reactions they gave were almost better than the adult reaction. So they'd be like, oh, what? No way. All these sort of screaming sort of reactions <laughs> that I really want. But it wasn't doing kids show material. Uh, so that was, that was an interesting thing for me to, uh, I'm still figuring it out, but it was interesting. Well, I remember reading in uh, Danny, or rather uh, David K. Silly Billy's uh, book in which he was saying when, when kids say, oh, I know this one, or I've seen this one, that doesn't mean, okay, well, put it away and I'm going to do something else, or that they know how that's done. It's just a familiarity with something that they have enjoyed and they want to see that again. So it's like, they're just letting everybody know, oh, I've seen this one before. And so magicians will often take that uh, comment from a child and thinking, okay, I'll put that aside and I'll do something else. Or he's already figured out or already knows how to do that. Or he has been taught that or has that trick that his mom bought him or something. So, um, but, but really what they're saying is same thing like with television shows where kids just sit and watch the same video over and over and over because they like it. So it's like, oh, I've seen that video before. There is something, it's just like with peekaboo when you are a baby where you know, kids are uh, excited to see you, you disappear, then suddenly you're back again. And so they they mm. want to see you again. So when you top and think about the fact that kids uh, are saying, oh, I've seen that before. Think of it from the standpoint, say, well, great. You're going to enjoy it then again, because if you enjoyed it before, you're going to love it then now. So just yeah, way. and I think that's what I mean by the honest, the the yeah. honesty we're getting from the kids is they may not have seen it before because you you know you pull out a deck of cards and a kid oh, yeah. says I've seen that before, um, <laughs> it's not true, right. but it's, they don't know what said, trick you're going to do. <laughs> exactly, that's right. But they're still giving you that honest. They're still giving you an honest response because an adult wouldn't say, "Oh yes, I love these." Or well, they might, but most adults <laughs> would just sort of wait until it's going to happen. They wouldn't go, oh, "Yes, great." Card tricks, I'm on board because I love card tricks. Um, and, and whereas kids will tell you straight away that, you know, not necessarily directly, but they, they'll give you those really honest reactions. But the, the challenge is with this whole thing is saying, you know, you, if you've got a new trick and you want to see if it works, this is what I was always told, take it to a kid's audience. Hmm. And it, it's, it's just such a, a broad statement. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. No, that's true because yeah, you, they don't you could, like my 17 phase um, poker deal routines very much. <laughs> oh, but I would love it. Yeah. <laughs> but the hard um, thing is that also like that either. <laughs> no. Speaking of a 17 phase uh, car routine or something, then let's get into the next one, which happens to be of the classics are called classics for a reason. Uh, what do you think about that? I, I see for me, I, that's something that I 
was absolutely against for a very long time because I like, no, originality, everything has to be original. And if you're not original, you're a hack and um, you're just copying other people. And I think that comes from, because I've got a, it's a background in stand-up comedy. And so the mm-hmm. idea of doing things that other people have done before is, you know, <laughs> frowned upon. Um, but then, you know, as I got older, I realized that actually, you know, there's a certain truth to that, that these routines that have endured for hundreds of years, that uh, they endure for specific reasons. Uh, and even if some elements of it may be boring to an audience, you know, it doesn't, there's still things we can learn for why do people like these specific routines and why do they want to see them again and again and why do they enjoy them? I think the thing with the classics is that you've also got to be careful about what the audience, what you're serving to the audience because you say, oh, I'll just do the linking rings because it's a classic, they'll love it. But if you do it badly, hmm. you're not doing the linking rings. You know, it, it's, it's still got to be, a, a, you know, a, a really perfect performance of it. You've got to strip it back and say, what is the trick? Like Lindsay, my mentor, used to say, the rings is funny because basically it's the same trick repeated 20 times. I'm linking mm-hmm. and unlinking, linking and unlinking, linking and unlinking. But when you get a really beautifully constructed routine, even the audience who sit down and go, oh, oh, he's got these rings, oh, dear. You start and they're like, oh, I have not seen this before. So they're seeing the classic, but they're seeing a presentation or a performance that takes it to where it should be and, and why it became a classic in the first place. But how many performances yeah. of the rings or the cups and balls or the billiard balls do you watch and you're like, this person really doesn't understand what this trick is all about or why it was yeah. a classic. I, I think that where the people use that phrase, the classics are a classics for a reason in, in two ways. There's sort of what you're talking about, which is even if you don't necessarily perform the classics, you should uh, know the routines and understand them and know why they have endured and why they work and what makes them good routines. But I think the flip side is that there are a lot of people who use that as an excuse to do, um, uh, to, to not challenge themselves and to say, no, no, why, you know, why would I come up with new routines? And I, there's a magician here in Melbourne who this is their attitude is other people have already come up with great routines and they've got, you know, hundred, 200 years of history behind them why would I come in with these brand new untested routines that aren't very good when I could just do these ones, which are guaranteed crowd pleasers? Because time has proven them to be classics. Exactly. That's right. Yeah. And they use that as an excuse to one, not challenge themselves uh, and two, not to recognize that magic is allowed to, like any art form is allowed to to, to change and grow and evolve. And that while the reasons why they are classics might stay the same, you know, audiences can, you know, there are trends of what people want to see and, and we need to be able to sort of listen to the audience and change and adjust. Now the audience will get tired of seeing the classics all the time if they are just the same classics presented as they've been presented for the last 200 years. I mean, well, yeah, but even then, I mean, if everybody does, there are people who, when you pull out a deck of cards, they just sort of, oh, okay, you know, oh, card tricks, oh, you know, just because they've seen so many. And that's something we just need to be aware of. I mean, there was that, you know, Joshua Jay had his, um, I've forgotten the name of the, the study, but he had the study where he got people to watch magic and then did a survey of like, did you like it? Did you not like it? Why did you like it? Mm-hmm. Why did you not like it? 
And I believe when it came to like one of the big reasons people didn't like magic was these are old tricks and I don't like them. You know, I, these are boring old fashioned magic tricks. Hmm. Um, but at the same time, there were people who the reason why they did like it was this is a classic magic trick. Uh, let's go on then to the next one. Cause we got a lot still uh, to cover over here. So do you think it is important to be entertaining more than it is to be original? Oh, that's a, that's always, um, I, I always, always have jokes about that. So like, you know, when you do your act and the audience are very flat, you go, well, at least I was entertained. Now, at least I was original. I don't have to be entertained. You know, <laughs> new stuff. It doesn't matter. Uh, but it's, it's sort of, it's sort of a myth that you'll fall back on depending on how well your show went or not. Uh, I, I've always found for me, I really always strive to be original. I, I will take a classic and twist it on its head and try to make it different. Because as as Nicholas said, the, the, that Josh Jay um, survey, mm-hmm. the, the, the main thing audiences wanted was surprise and they want something different and some, something they haven't seen before. So I think it's very important to be original. Um, and But you know, got to be entertaining as well. So for me, uh, I, I visualize it like this. Imagine you're climbing up a ladder. And one on your right hand is entertainment, on the left hand is originality. And so you're climbing up one hand after another. You can't just be entertainment, 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 because the show will be completely off kilter. And you can't just strive to be original because nobody's going to want to watch it. So you've got to t- take it step by step, rung by rung, and climb that ladder with entertainment and originality in, in both hands. Yeah, like I don't, I mean, I don't think they're mutually exclusive, being original or entertaining. Um, and I think that. You, you can be both. I think in terms of originality, if audiences do say they want, they don't want to see the same old tired stuff, what they really mean though is they don't want to feel like they're seeing the same old tired stuff because as we know, you can change, you know, you can do the same routines as everyone else, but you change the colour of the props and people will feel, you know, feel like they're seeing something different. The, the um, or at the same time, you can pull out an entirely original card trick, but because it's a card trick, the audience will feel like what they're seeing is is unoriginal. So I think it's the perception of freshness and surprise is what the audience is looking for. Whereas magicians, we are looking, I think, for perhaps a deeper originality when we watch magic of like I've never that method or that idea or something, you know, much deeper. Whereas I think from an audience perception, uh, the the, the illusion of originality is probably enough as far as they're concerned. I know many magicians who are not necessarily original, but they're very entertaining. And I, somebody comes immediately to mind is Charles Green III, very good friend of mine who I uh, respect immensely and does a great job. He takes some other people's routines and then puts his own twist on that, but they are not necessarily his own invention. They're his own presentations. And even if he uses someone else's presentation, the way that he would do it with uh, the way he would present it is, is so much different and it's his own and it is unique and it has made him uh, very successful. But uh, there are not a lot of things that he has uh, taken, uh, or I should say, created of uh, by himself. Likewise, let's say David Copperfield. I think you just surround yourself with some people. Let's say Chris Kenner and Homer Lugag and some others. So I don't know that David necessarily. I don't think of him as a creator, uh, but he will get Bill Smith and Jim Steinmeier or other people who are creating things for him. Uh, but he's, he's he and Charles and many others are very entertaining, but not original from the standpoint of 
being creative. Now, I might be getting off into a different area as far as being original versus creative because they're original in their presentations but uh, and entertaining, the same rungs like you're talking about, but they're not creative. So maybe I am talking about a third leg of this. this well, uh, I was going to jump in and say Jeff Hobson with the egg bag. You know, the egg bag is Precisely. not considered the original. It's one of the, the oldest routines, and Jeff does a very Perfect. standard routine, but his presentation is original. Good, mm. good and advice. His character yeah. is original. And I think also that that speaks to the idea that often what what I think of when I think of originality is brand new. And so I'm often creating routines that are brand new that maybe aren't that great, but they're just for my own, you know, intellectual <laughs> pleasure. That but they're, I, they're I always, always very well received. <laughs> you know, and but often I'll, re, re, perfor, I'll create something, perform it once and go, yeah, that was good. People like that. And then I forget about it because it's, you know, move on to the next move thing. Move on. Uh, which is not very, it, 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 professionally, you know, as a, as a business person is a terrible, it's a terrible way to run a business, to be creating new things, do them once, you know, create a product, use it once and then chuck it out. Um, and I think sometimes being like me and being too focused on originality for originality's sake, um, or just to, just to sort of be able to say I'm original and have that kind of smug pride that the, you know, those kind of true originals can sometimes have. Mm-hmm. Striving for that, I think, can get in the way of quality and also just getting the, get the way of refining what you already do. You know, like there's a magician here in Melbourne who is a kid's, kid's entertainer and he performed the same routines for as long as I've known him, but he is always wanting to improve them and change them and is recording his shows and listening to them and learning new skills that, you know, can help make these, you know, eight or nine routines that he does better. And so in that sense, he's sort of saying, okay, I'm not, not keen on this sort of originality or brand new routines because I know these ones work. So instead I'm going to focus on how do I make them better? And for him professionally, that has worked very well. And he gets a lot of work because people know what to expect and they know that even if they book him again, he's going to be just that little bit slicker. When you're combining the entertainment with originality, I think that's what the it factor is. When you have someone who has it, like you mentioned then, Tim, with with, with Jeff Hobson, or as I said, like with Charles Green or David Copperfield, they've got it. I mean, I could do the same tricks, but I'm not them. I cannot, you can only be you, you know. We have a, a monthly get-together called Magicians at Work, which Nicholas performs at quite a lot. And uh, we both of us will try new material out at the, these events all the time. And I, I've seen so many of these one-off performances that Nicholas has done where he'll perform something completely out of the blue. And we're like, the magician's thinking, what was that? That was amazing. And he's mm-hmm. like, yeah, I'm, I'm done with that. I'm not going to do it anymore. <laughs> but, but part of it is because, you know, he has a very entertaining personality on stage and engages with the audience. So he, he, he's one of these people who can literally read the phone book and the audience will be happy just watching it. So that way he does get to do these original pieces. And then he says he chucks them away and that's the end of it. But it's, it's the, what you learn from performing the original pieces that then is a bedrock for future pieces. That gets us to the next question, which is about whether we use uh, props. In other words, that um, the good magicians need and depend upon having a lot of props. In other words, are you a better magician because you have a lot of props or not? Or does a good magician need a lot of props? 
This comes back a lot to the the old days of the comedy clubs when you'd turn up to a comedy club as a as a magician, mm-hmm. and they've all been up there entertaining just with a microphone, telling jokes, getting the people going, and you walk on with like four tables, and all the comedians are like, oh, he needs all this stuff to entertain the audience, mm-hmm. and yet to an extent the audience are going like, oh wow, look at all this gear, this is going to be different when when they get a bit excited for it. Uh, mm. So I think, especially with Nicholas, with his background in stand-up, you, you've got a lot about that experience. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's there's a, um, I mean, c- comedians, uh, you know, they, comedians don't mind a prop comedian, although they sometimes look down upon. But I think there is a perception in stand-up comedy of it's you and the microphone, you know, and the audience, and that's it, and you're creating something from nothing in that way. And I, I do agree with the idea of there is a, you know, if you can walk out with a deck of cards or, or you know, a mentalist who can walk out with nothing and 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 perform, you know, a, a, a set with nothing at all, just just them on stage, that's a skill. Um, and which was the title of one is- of Max Maven's DVDs he had a while back, which was called Nothing, in which you would go out basically naked before an audience. You have nothing but maybe a marking pen and a clipboard or notebook and pants and yeah pants. <laughs> yes. and it, it and it's a great challenge to give yourself is how you know how how few props do i need to entertain this audience but um i think doing it just so you can see that there's there's no uh, from an audience perspective the audience doesn't get any great benefit from you having less props nor do they really get any great benefit from you having more props, except for that sort of delight in seeing pretty props. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think it really just comes down to you need to have the the right number of props. You know, you need the uh, you yeah. need the tools required to do the job. That's the question uh, of what's right for you may be different for somebody else. I was looking at a recent posting that Nick Lewin had on Facebook in which he was showing this is what he's carrying with him for a 40 minute show. I think he was going to be on a cruise or someplace he was doing. Uh, and it was nothing more than just. I think a thumb tip and uh, I think a, a gypsy thread and a couple other things. It looks like everything basically is from his pockets. It's a no table act, basically. Yeah. But it's such it's a the- weird flex. Like, I just, I don't care. Like, I'm like, good, good for you. That's great. It's such a, it's, it's sort of, do you know what I mean? It's like someone sort of going, hey, look how many push ups I can do. It's like, oh, wow, that's great. You, you've really got a cool skill there. But like, what, like, why are you showing me? Like, I'm like, do you know what I mean? Like, like, do you know, like it's such an odd thing to, to brag about. Um, it, it, it's um, funny. I, so I, I didn't see that specific post, but I've seen those sort of, mm, look what I can do. And um, I, I used to be, that used to be my thing. And I'd be embarrassed if I had too many props, but I've never had a client or an audience complain that I've got too many props. And I used to do all the shows in shopping centers, or shopping malls, I guess. Yeah. The American version. And so I'd be hired by the center management to come in and I'd set up a show on the stage and I'd perform, you know, these kind of big shows for the, the public. And I would find that the, the, the manager of the center would be sort of wringing their hands, very nervous until they saw that I'd set up a big spider fleck backdrop and the sound system was up and I had a couple of road cases and colorful props. And also the everything matched. It was, you know, it was like a matching mm-hmm. color um, coordinated, color coordinated, everything sort of worked together. And you, this is before I've even started and you would just see them visibly relax and go, ah, great. We've hired a, we've hired a professional. Yeah. And I think having that, you know, it's when you go and see an illusion show 
you, you sit down and there's a sort of like, well, this person's got tens of thousands of dollars. As a magician, <laughs> we don't do that. But I think the audience, they go, oh, look, you know, we're in a nice theater and there's all these expensive things on the stage and, oh, they come on and there's all these dancers. Oh, they've got money. They must be, they must be good. Mm-hmm. And they relax and, and, you know, go in with the expectation that this is going to be good. But I think if, when I walk out with nothing, uh, you know, or like a little briefcase uh, to do with my stand-up show. I've got to work hard to win that audience. Well, Tim, out. what are your thoughts on that? Because you're working cruise ships and you're working on a big stage like that with a thousand people there. It's it's absolutely right. You know, the, it depends on the situation because I was saying before about, you know, if you go on a cruise ship, sometimes there is the expectation of they want to see the stage filled. And I was in a situation with one suitcase I wasn't going to just carry a hand gear like Nick, but I had one suitcase full of gear and it still doesn't fill the stage. So I ended up using inflatable props um, to hmm. throw through the audience. I can't do now, obviously, but th- throw these inflatable props through the audience to select volunteers and stuff and make the show feel bigger, even hmm. though it didn't look bigger. Uh, I remember going to see The Illusionists, uh, one of the later versions of the shows, and the stage was virtually empty for the entire time. You know, they'd bring out one prop or another prop, but it, it was different to the early version where there were massive props all over the stage and it just didn't feel like it was enough. It didn't feel like you got value. And then on the other hand, I've done a lot of shows in people's private homes where I'll walk in just wearing my suit. Now, they don't see any props. I've got all the props underneath the suit and in the pockets, but I just walk in and say, could I borrow that? And I do some magic. Have you got a watch? Can I do? And... and that is much stronger. So it really depends on the situation. Uh, you know, the audience has an expectation for an illusion show that they're going to see big props and spectacular thing. And if you don't deliver, they're disappointed. Uh, a- but if I brought all those props into the person's house, they'd be like, what are you, are you moving in? What's going on here? <laughs> yeah. That's a very good point. And that brings us to the next uh, one of these myths, and that is, or not, and that is a be yourself. Because if you are yourself, some people bring a lot of things, some people don't. It's whoever you are and whatever kind of show that you do. So what is your thought about, uh, is that a myth or? The, the main thing I learned during the pandemic was authenticity. Mm-hmm. Because what you, I was doing the interviews of, of Lane Day Live and uh, I interviewed different people. And one person I interviewed was an influencer as well as a magician. And she was saying that if you're on, you know, doing your influence posts and, and you're saying, oh, I, I love this lipstick. And then the next week, your fans see you were using a different brand of lipstick. You lose all your fans because mm-hmm. you're not authentic. They're thinking you're, you're, she just does whatever the, the, the client tells her, you know, whoever pays the money, she supports that brand. Uh, and I thought about that a lot. And I realized that when we're doing the um, the Zoom shows, I'm just sitting here in front of us, in front of my computer, looking at people's faces. And it's a one-on-one experience between me and the audience. So I can't be the showman on stage. I can't be, and now watch as I take this. Because it's so big and it's so broad, it's ridiculous. But by bringing it down... And, you know, admitting to the audience, like sometimes there'd be a glitch in the in the feed or sometimes a trick wouldn't work. And I'd admit it and we'd all have a laugh together. And the audience felt those moments were the stronger moments, the more memorable moments in the show because it was authentic. It was real. It's like a juggler so, dropping something. If, if the juggler drops it for real and admits it and, and you know, like, well, this is really hard. I have, I, I have practiced, but, you know, I'm really, you know, but yeah. if they drop yeah. it just as a, like, oh, I've dropped it again, but now, you know, the audience knows it's it's ah. a fake drop, so gotcha. it's got it's got to be. You, you, you're not yeah, you're not trying to fake sincerity or fake. You know, you you really have to be yourself and be very genuine. And on stage, uh, it'd be interesting getting back onto the very big stage, like the cruise ships with two thousand people. 
but I want to see if I can carry that authenticity across rather than be the showman. Uh, and a lot of the material that I put together now is telling my stories, but I don't want to be like, you know, the very first time I saw snow, you know, that sort of, <laughs> oh, oh yeah. Oh. We've moved on past that. You know, that's not authentic. We it's, haven't it's, though. We haven't moved past oh, well, that. Well, well, I'm trying. And, and I see, I, sorry, this is my pet peeve. And it, I, I, it is, it's a particular, it's a particular, it's not, it's, I, I notice more often in American magicians. So, and I'm not sure if you notice this as well. It's got like, if you agree with this, but I've noticed there is this sort of style of talking where it's, it's, it feels a little bit like an infomercial. Do you know, like when you have the sort of fake infomercial where someone's at home and it's a set and they're sort of their, their neighbor walks in and they go, Hey, how's it going? Oh, I'm just making some um, daiquiris with my new blend. Oh, I love your daiquiris. And it's this real sort of faux authenticity that I see through instantly. And yet I see, I see it a lot in magicians where they're sort of, maybe they're used to performing on big stages and then they're trying to be this kind of intimate setting and it feels very fake and very plastic and not, it, it feels like this real faux authenticity. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know whether it's, yeah, whether I'm, whether it's just me that's noticing this, but it, it comes up a lot. And it's very much that, you know, when I was a kid, you know, uh, we didn't, you know, we, we, I never saw snow or the sort of. Well, they talk about things yeah. also whenever that youth will pretend it's like when I traveled off to India and I brought this amazing <laughs> yeah. illusion back and the kid looks like he's 16. It could be 30 years old, but he looks like he's 15 or something. So sometimes it's hard to sell something unless you look like me and you've got gray hair and a beard. <laughs> you look like but, you but may have yeah. been there. You know? This is the whole thing. Well, that's true. Story. And that's part of the thing. So if I, um, you know, so, so just say you've got a 60, you know, cause I, I know, I know someone who has done that. Um, this is, you know, this was in stand up comedy, but he looks about 16. He was about 21, but he had spent years, like three or four years traveling around the world. And he did a stand up comedy show about what he had learned, but because he looked 16 and was only 21, even though what he was saying was true and was authentic because he's, he, it was unbelievable, <laughs> even though it was true. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. Hard to sell. And, it, and it's, truth. So it's, yeah, it, it's not like, I think like what you were saying, it's not enough just to be necessarily telling the truth or being yourself, but you've got to present something that is this, like, you have to present, I think a cohesive, authentic mm-hmm. version of yourself where how you look and what you say and what you present is, is all telling the same story. Right. And, and that same sort of true story about yourself. And I think the, the original myth of the whole be yourself was because a lot of people were trying to be David Copperfield or trying to be Chris Angel or trying to be David Blaine. No, they're trying to be somebody other than themselves. And I remember Enzo, uh, when he came along, Enzo Fico is a great friend of ours here in Melbourne. When he came along to magic school that I was running back in the 90s, uh, he was doing a great manip act, but he looked uncomfortable. I said, well, what, what do you like? What, what, what's your passion? He said, I love gangster movies. And so I said, next week, come in a, in a gangster suit and just do magic with cards and cigarettes and things gangsters would use. And we created the character Al Cappuccino. And Al Cappuccino is more Enzo than Enzo is. That's funny. Yeah. That's funny. And that's interesting because he's not a gangster, but it's something that is a part, like he's not, well, I don't know. He has a he's cast, he's not a gangster, but he, you know, very sweet, kind man. But it's something that is, that is authentic to him. It's this passion that he has. Um, I hear that there's, um, what's a good example? Oh, the movie Kung Fu Panda. So the movie Kung Fu Panda is made by a largely like 
American, um, you know, big American studios. Yeah, Jack Black and, yeah, and you know, people. Yeah, yeah, right. and most of the cast are not Asian and most of the right. people involved are not Asian, have anything to do with that culture. But the movie is loved in, uh, in China um, by, you know, millions of people because it shows an authentic love for kung fu movies. Mm-hmm. And even though they're not making their own, even though it's not their culture and it's not necessarily their story, it is their passion and their love for it comes through. Whereas movies like Raya and the Last Dragon that came out recently were kind of like not looked on as quite as fondly because it was seen as a bit of a, you know, it was seen as a bit more of a sort of cynical cash grab. Well, so I don't think I don't think you need to be a gangster, you know, but you need to be able to to be able to express that love authentically. And when you are going to be dressing authentically like that, you are going to dress in the style of that character. So when you're going to be yourself, you're going to be yourself on stage. So your stage persona could be different from what you are off stage as well, which brings us to our next point, And that is of always dressing one step above your audience uh, a little bit. And so in this case, you're going to be <laughs> having, we're talking about being yourself, you have a different character and you're dressing something completely different. You could be dressing above or below, depending upon whatever that your character is, but that's going to be separate from if you are just doing a regular show. So when I say a regular show, whether you're doing some strolling at a cocktail party and you have to know whether people are going to be dressed casually or they're going to be coat and tie or is it evening attire after six or whatever. And so do you believe that uh, we should always dress one step above in every case or is that a myth? I find it interesting because um, uh, on cruise ships, often they'll say, please make sure you bring formal attire because you may be performing on the formal night. It's like, well, if I'm performing the formula, I'm still wearing my costume. I'm still wearing my suit. It's <laughs> got point. all the gimmicks in it. I'm not going to like dress up in a tux and move all the gimmicks and try and do the show. <clears throat> so um, I think for me, um, always dress one step above the audience is relevant more in strolling magic than stage because on stage often you are playing the character who could be yourself. But in strolling magic, you sort of want to don't want to stand out too much. You want to stand a little bit. You want to walk through the crowd and people go, Oh, who is that well-dressed gentleman or who is that well-dressed lady? As opposed to going, mm. oh, didn't they get the memo? This is cocktail attire. <laughs> you know, that's yeah. just really bad. Yeah. And I've made that because I am I am fascinated by fashion and men's fashion, but I don't have a natural um, uh, instinct for it. So I will often misread. <laughs> this is just in all situations. I'll show up in jeans and t-shirt and everyone else is wearing suits. So I'll show up in a suit and everyone else is wearing, um, um, you know, like, oh, the worst one, a client booked me and said, oh, can you dress up as an Elizabethan, um, like a sort of Shakespearean yeah, kind of, um, mm-hmm. magician for this, this Shakespeare night we're doing? And I go, yeah, great. And I did that. Uh, and it went very well. And he goes, great. Can you do it again for us for this other event? Because they'll love it too. And I showed up and it was like a tiki beach theme. And I'm dressed in like full, like Elizabethan attire. I did the same thing. It, and it didn't matter that I was definitely dressed better than everyone else there. I literally, <laughs> you know, I was, it was much fancier, but it was ridiculous. It just didn't, didn't suit. Someone oh, said one, to me, one step ahead. You should dress as if you've got somewhere to better to go after this. <laughs> like, okay, that's a good know, way of putting it. Whatever the event is, it's like I've got a slightly better event to go to next. And I think that it's a rule of thumb. It's not always true, but I, I think that's a good. Um, that's a good way yeah. of putting that. Let me move to the next good one. Way. Also, should we? Oh, another myth is: should we always learn just a couple of good tricks? 
I think Nicholas covered that a little bit with uh, the other magician talking about he's got a, a kid's show with just like nine tricks and does it really well. But but the other side of the coin, I remember something Johnny Thompson said where he said there's a difference between a magician and a magic act. Mm. And I think it depends what you want to do. If you, if you love magic and have a passion for magic and you want to be an all-rounded magician, yeah, dip your toe into every every pool and try all the different types of magic. And you might suddenly find that you actually like card tricks better than the illusions you've been doing or whatever. Uh, try a bit of everything. But yes, if you do want to have a career um, just doing one show or one couple of acts and you can travel because I think that's the, the big thing you you might need to travel uh, unless you're in the kids show arena where they like to see the same show over and over again mm-hmm. uh, it, it is it is hard uh, but I, I really like that 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 thing that Johnny said where he said um, if you if you only know your act your eight minute act it could be the best act in the world but are you a magician or are you just a magic act hmm yeah, I think though the flip side of that is that you do have people like me whose main act, you know, the way in which I pay the bills has, has my act, you know, has suffered over the years because I have not um, spent enough time refining it and making it as good as it could be because I've been distracted by shiny new props. You know, like it's like, well, I've got my ambitious card routine that I really like performing. I've got my card to pocket. Yeah, that's a re- you know, these are really nice routines. I can do the shell game. I can do all these things, but I could always be doing them better. And some of the time that I spent on, you know, silly flights of fancy and new ideas and exploring creativity probably should have gone into making those acts better. But but when you you're know, doing that, you 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 you've you've got your act at like ninety five percent, and you could spend ten years to get it to ninety six percent, or you could spend those ten years learning another hundred tricks that might somehow end up being better tricks to add to the act later. Mm-hmm. All right, you convinced me. I'm going to go and buy a hundred more tricks right there, now. Yay! <laughs> but when you're talking something. about some people I who are doing, thing, I saw something cool on Vanishing Ink. Hang on, give me a second. <laughs> <laughs> People doing things very well. We would refer to a few people a little bit earlier, for an example, like Jeff Hobson. You think of uh, the egg bag that he does, or maybe uh, Michael Marr's got a top it or something. There's some people who have some tricks that are associated with them, and they do that then very well, which leads me to the next thing as the way that you get to do those things very well is through repetition, which is, again, one of those myths. Should you be performing and be ready to perform or actually perform at every opportunity? I'll give you the worst story of that. So I was flying to the Magic Castle for one of the first gigs I did the castle from Australia to America, which, as you know, is quite a long flight. Mm -hmm. And I was traveling with another magician and we got seated in the bulkhead. So we got plenty of room and there's the toilets right next to us. And so I'm stretched out, ready to have a nice 14, 15 hour sleep (laughs) or something. But my friend likes to perform. And so every time anyone was going to the toilet and waiting in that area, he would start doing tricks for them. So for the entire flight. <laughs> it was a little crowd wow. as he would do tricks around. I'm like, please, I just want to sleep. I want to sleep. <laughs> no, Howard, what's this trick? So I don't think you should perform at every opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. I, I, I guess it depends. I, yeah, I think you should perform at every opportunity, but I would, I think we as performers need to think very carefully about what an opportunity actually means. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, like if it's a, like what is by an opportunity, an opportunity to me is not just the 
a, a, you know, an audience and a, a willing audience and a, you know, a, a period of time in which. Just standing in line at the theater and think, okay, well, there are people here. They probably want to be entertained while they're waiting. And so well, let me show exactly. them something. Exactly. I'm going to do a trick. But, you know, any, any opportunity. But uh, to me, an opportunity is something that, that um, goes further. Do you know? So if it's like, oh, I've got this new card trick I want to test. There's some people here who love magic. Like, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to test my new card trick on them. And if you, so you, the, the, the opportunity is to practice, you know, right. to actually try that new idea. Or if it's like, uh, you know, um, it might also just be a, a sense of like, oh, if I impress that person, they might hire me. That's an opportunity. So to me, I think an opportunity to perform is not just a space by the toilets on an airplane, um, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and a willing audience um, on a long haul flight who've got nothing better to do, but rather a sense of like, okay, but what is the what is the opportunity? An opportunity to rehearse, an opportunity to play, an opportunity to show off. You know, for some people, it's that compulsion. You know, like you you have, you know like the person you're talking about, those people who just if they don't do it, they start to feel anxious and they've got the sort of shakes that they've got. To, you know. Jeff McBride says, if you're going to be a magician, you should be a magician 24 seven. That doesn't mean necessarily in my interpretation of what he's saying to do something at every moment, every time that you can and forcing the moment to, to show hmm. somebody. But if the moment should arise and someone asks you, or there someone asks for a business card and you show it, do a magic trick when you're producing your card or something, there's, there's a reason for why you're doing <laughs> it. Then they want to see some magic. So then you can prove that you're a magician at, at that point. Hmm. You're, you're laughing and you don't think there's a, there's a great episode of She-Hulk. Uh, Nicholas probably saw it, uh, where Wong, Wong is uh, suing yes. a magician. Magician, pretend- right. <laughs> and, and at one point, Wong pulls out his business card and it's burning and the, the name appears on the card and She-Hulk's unimpressed and he goes, cheap magician trick. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's so many of these tricks that we've got you know this is a great way to hand it your business card uh, yeah. i'm sure some people are impressed but others are like this guy's a real try hard i think that's also <laughs> yeah. a difference between a professional and someone who is not i'm not saying an amateur or a part-time professional i'm just saying someone who doesn't do it on a regular basis if you do it on a regular basis it's a job and if you're not doing it on a regular basis you are trying to force your hand and show any and everybody that you can and carry things with you to try to practice and that's your hobby you enjoy doing it but if uh, you're a full-time magician you, you do this on a regular enough basis it's kind of like well, i don't need to drive the bus to show you you know i I don't need to drive a car, whatever. When, when yeah. I when I was growing up, when I was growing up with the young magicians, we used to be taken every weekend to an old folks' home and inflict our talents on the residents of there the you home. Go. Yeah, and yeah. they would watch it, and we would get practice, and they'd be like, "Well, this is a bit." a bit of a bright color in the day, even though I saw how all their tricks were done. But, you know, we'd be young magicians getting our experience. They'd enjoy. It was a mutually beneficial situation. I think the important thing is there has to be a benefit from both sides. And we have here in, in Melbourne, as I said, our magic get togethers every month where the audience comes along and they know they're watching magicians trying out new things. And the audience actually gets to leave anonymous comments on notes for the magicians so mm-hmm. that the magicians, you know, because otherwise, you know, you, you do a trick and you try a new trick out, the audience say, oh, that was great. But quietly they're saying, I saw the thing hanging out of his sleeve. So they can actually write this down and they don't feel embarrassed and the magician gets the genuine feedback. So that's uh, th- those sort of things I think you want to perform at every opportunity to showcase your new tricks, to try new tricks, to get to road test them. But uh, as you're saying, a professional magician doesn't want to give it away free. 
Mm-hmm. I yeah, but you know what? Like that's really that's such a short short term thinking. Too. I know, like, I know. Like, we did like it's yeah. not you're not selling salt. Do you know what I mean? It's not <laughs> you're not you're not a you're not a petrol like fuel valve yeah. spurting it out and the tickets going up and down. Like it's it's a long game. We've got uh, two more things to cover, and one of them kind of gets to what you were talking about there, Tim. When you were going to be when you were a kid and you're working at the. Um, Start say nursing home or retirement communities or wherever, and people say, oh, "I know how that was done" or whatever. Uh, do you think that it uh, that it's true that people think that it's fun to be fooled, or you think that it's more fun to know how that it's done? I think people find it they find it fun to be fooled in a fun way. If you if you make the experience enjoyable for them, they really they really like it and they have fun. And if you can if you can give them the confidence that you are in control, you are driving the bus and you know where you're going, they're going to go along with you and they're not going to challenge you and they're not going to be like, oh, I need to know how it's done. They're going to go, look, this guy's a professional. I'm in good hands. I know what's happening. You know, um, I've, got to, I've got to give a story of, um, of Anthony DeMasi. Uh, he, he'll appreciate this. Uh, years ago, he was running some nights. He's a good magician here in Australia and he was running some nights and he loves magic so much that the nights were, you know, several magicians entertaining, the audience comes in, they watch it, but he couldn't stop and he would just keep going. And the audience, like, he would do an act and, and the audience like, oh, this is great. And then he'd keep going, oh, this is really good. And they keep going, the audience going, he doesn't know where this is going, does he? <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't know when to stop. <laughs> and the routine would keep going and going and going and he's having a great time, they're having a great time, but there's a sense that the bus is about to veer off the road at any moment. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So you want to give the audience that sense of, of control uh, that they, they really feel like they're in the hands of a professional and then they enjoy being fooled. But, uh, and then they don't want to know how it's done. But, but it's just when the magician seems to challenge them, when the magician seems to be, you know, oh, look at this, yes, aren't I clever, that the audience doesn't enjoy being fooled because they feel like, you know, they're being threatened almost. They're being belittled. Well, it is a threat, though. I mean, that's... So this this like there's a I've forgotten the 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 name for it, but it's this idea of, you know, when presented when people are presented with uncertainty, you know, if you're the, the caveman and you, there's a rustling in the bushes, you don't go, oh, what's that, and walk in. You <laughs> you you assume that it's a threat. That's why people get into so many arguments on the internet. Is when you can't read someone's tone, you just assume they're being rude. Um, and assume that it's a threat. And I think it's the same with magic. That uncertainty, people take it as a threat. And it's our job, I think, to... Uh, it, to me, fooling people isn't fun or even the point of what we do, but it is a um, it is a necessary evil It's a, of doing what we actually want to do, which is to create the, like, moment of wonder and the feeling of amazement. Well, I've we seen that... To feel, I've seen business know, cards... Fool they- to do that. Right, where the business cards would say it's fun to be fooled, but more fun to know. And I don't know if that's necessarily the case. It's kind of like saying that there's no Santa Claus or something. They really don't want to know because then you pulled the curtain away and suddenly they know how it's done. And it's not as certainly you can never put that genie back in a bottle and fool the person. You could use a different method and fool them, of course. But I believe that as far as some people, I don't think some people want to believe in magic, not the real thing, but at least kind of have some sort of a childlike opinion of kind of how things are done. And I don't hmm. uh, I don't think people want to be made a fool of, but they don't mind being fooled if they're entertained, which goes back to one of the other things is more important to hmm. entertain. 
Well, it, it's yeah, also right. it's also the the whole TikTok phenomenon where people will perform a trick and then they show it from a different camera angle and show how it's done, yeah. and they get millions and millions of followers. So, are they the people who are saying it's fun to be fooled, but it's more fun to know how it's done? Well, it is. I think the thing is, though, for some people, like that, it is very frustrating. And this is nothing to do with the magician that. There's for a lot of people, they watch a magic show and they want to figure out how it's done. And if they don't figure out how it's done, they're frustrated or a bit disappointed. It's, it's, you know, it's like being presented with a, a murder mystery with the last chapter ripped out. Like that's their experience. And they might even be entertained, but there's just this niggling sense that they want to figure it out. And but I they think feel that that's that, not right enough to figure out. They feel disappointed themselves. Yeah. Well, yeah, maybe. But just, I mean, the same feeling like if you don't escape from the escape room or you don't, you know, you don't see the twist coming. For me, I love a good twist. You know, I love being fooled by by a twist um, in a movie. But some people hate it because it, you know, it just frustrates them. Because for them, like the an M Night Shyamalan is, movie. It's yeah, got a twist. exactly. <laughs> but for some people, I think they want. That for them, it's the intellectual exercise of figuring it out. And for a long time, I was very much like, my job is to try and convince these people that they're wrong to do what they do naturally mm-hmm. and to be joined on my whimsical flights of fancy. But I think it's actually when I talk, so when people say after the show, like, how did you do that? Or start asking questions. I always am very honest with them. I say, well, obviously I'm not going to give you too much information. Um, but if you'd like to find out more about what I do, and then I give them, like, I recommend a book to them. Like mm-hmm. there's a great book. And I'll recommend a book that, you know, if it's a card trick, I'll sort of say there's a great book series called, um, there's a great book called The Royal Road to Card Magic that may not even have the trick that I did in it. And I go, and that's a really, if you want to find Matt more, but obviously I'm not going to give you a secret. And it's, it's, you know, because some people just don't want to be fooled. And at the very least, I'm just offering them an olive branch of saying, well, go read this book and maybe you'll learn a little bit more and maybe you'll get bored or whatever it is. But it's still giving them the pleasure of going, well, actually the riddles, the you know, this puzzle you've, you've got in your head isn't over yet. You can go off and keep trying after the show's finished. Now, a friend of mine had put out a mentalism okay. book and was doing a square circle, sorry, a square circle. He was doing a, a, a magic square and it, it was a very difficult kind of a magic square, but he said, and, and I will be glad to share this. And he would pass out these pieces of paper at the end of the show that gave how to do this, but it was using square roots. And I mean, it was very convoluted yeah. and algorithms. That, that was and, Chuck, um, who was that Chuck? Not, yes. Um, Oh, what, sorry, what was his last name? Called Mentalism was, Inc., I believe. Uh, Mental, uh, Mentalism Inc. was Mentalism the, Inc. Uh, is the book, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's he, brilliant. Such a great is. method. That that whole that whole book and that whole show he does where he starts with stuff that is like possible, Basic. like a magic square. Right. Increasingly, and then the last thing he does Chuck is- Hickok. Hitchcock. Hitchcock. Chuck Hickok, that's it. Yeah, yeah, last thing he does is to predict the future, mm-hmm. um, which he thought is the most impossible mentalism. Right. And I, I mean- totally on board for that entire show but you're buying into that i love the process that he goes through another Mm. whole conversation let's go to this last question as we start to get to wrap up over here the number 10th one uh, question which has to do myth uh, or truism you make a choice and that is um what what do you do or when approaching a uh, group of people or guests uh do you tell them that you're a magician or not there is a, a, a wonderful old story, uh, which Nicholas and I have discussed a lot, which is uh, Ron Wilson's story about how his approach to close-up magic, where he'd walk up to people and say, oh, did you drop this knife? And he's got the color-changing knife, and they go, oh, no, that's not mine. And he'd go, oh, maybe it was a red one. 
and they all go, ha, 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 you're a magician, let's entertain. Now, in Australia, if you go up and say, did you drop this knife? They go, yeah, it's mine, go away. <laughs> no, like I've, I've developed a whole bunch of um, approaches uh, for strolling magic. And my favorite one is just offering people rubber bands. So I just walk up to people with, don't say anything. I've got like a deadpan expression on my face and I hold out a rubber band to somebody until they take it. Then I hold a rubber band to the next person. They take it and they take, and so what's happened is they've, they've taken these rubber bands. I haven't really interrupted their conversation, but the conversation sort of dries up as everyone's going, what, what? going on and then someone will say what are these for and i go didn't they tell you they said no i said oh let me show you they say you take one rubber band it's like an icebreaker the other person does their rubber band and then i go into crazy man's handcuffs mm -hmm. and the audience is like oh he's the magician and they they buy into it that way but i find that the other approach which a lot of people tend to do which is walk up and say hi i'm the magician here tonight would you like to see some magic there's sort of an automatic fear of it like mm, no thank you or no it's okay that doesn't cost you anything it's free as part of the entertainment yeah that's all right we're, we're fine here so i find that the, the key is not telling them you're a magician or not telling them a magician but actually just intriguing them just just getting them interested in who is this person what are they doing and then you win them over yeah i i think i disagree with that um although i do love the rubber band i've watched tim do the rubber band thing and it's really nice just to see the way in which he lures the audience in and he's got them before he's even started but i think that attitude of like we can't tell them we're magicians i think that it comes it's a fairly new idea and it, i don't think it exists anymore i think it's i think it's sort of generation x magicians who seem to have created this idea because I think in the 80s and 90s, the only magic people were seeing was like Copperfield and Siegfried and Roy and, you know, the most down-to-earth magician they might see is someone like Paul Daniels, you know, like, um, <laughs> and so, and for people, a lot of, you know, if you're a guy who just wants to do card tricks, it's kind of a bit embarrassing to be associated with this very flamboyant, over-the-top magic. And so a lot of magicians and a lot of audiences don't like that. And what you're, you know, if I'm going to go and do you know, the triumph routine, that's completely different from Siegfried and Roy and White Tigers, you know. And so I'm when I'm starting out as like a, you know, 21-year-old in the, you know, late 90s and I'm trying to approach a table, all I've got in my head is like, oh, they're going to think I'm these sort of lame, glitzy Las Vegas magicians and I want to be cool. And so it's a real, I think, just like a secret shame of being a magician that magicians <laughs> have. But now, and I'd go up and you'd have that reaction of, oh, magic, no, no. But now you'd go up and say, hi, I'm your magician for this evening. And people's eyes light up because they've seen Penn and Teller. They've seen TikTok. They've seen America's Got Talent. And they've got like favorite tricks and they've got questions for you. And, and if they're not into it, then that's great because that means you know, oh, this person's not into magic. Perfect. Mm -hmm. I can go and entertain the people who are. Things have changed then in our society, in the world, in the cultures yeah. uh, in which that magic has, we're in, a, I've heard, a new golden age of magic, and it's uh, popular on television and worldwide. I mean, not just in Las Vegas, but other places. And I know over in the Orient that they've had some casinos and magic that uh, France are and People are more interested in magic, perhaps. And like you say with TikTok, mm. uh, Tim, and everything else, perhaps that it is more prevalent. And so when you do say that you introduce yourself as a magician, you're now aligning yourselves, ourselves with someone who they are familiar with. I uh, was talking 
talking with my buddy, Jamie Salinas, uh, earlier about this particular question. And he said, contrary to what you were saying, Tim, is uh, uh, being afraid to introduce yourself as a magician and saying, I'm here. Can you, I show you some magic? I Like the attorneys say, you should never ask a question. You don't know what the answer is going to be. And if they can say no to you, don't ask that question. So if you're going to yeah. say, would you like to see some magic? No. Uh, well, okay. Where do you go from there? And you've already got things out and you're ready to go. And they, they uh, burn you down immediately. So I, that's, I like his idea when he's approaching a group and he will say, hi, my name is Jamie Salinas. And the, um, uh, you, you name drop the CEO, uh, let's say whomever uh, is, is the head person for the company. And they have asked me to come over and they've in, uh, in, invited me to come to uh, to share some magic with you because I'm the magician. And so they're not going to say no because it's their boss or their boss's boss or someone who is has some um, importance and influence. And so they're going to do what their boss wants them to do. Uh, and so and also that you're a magician. And so you're introduced that way. Another buddy of mine and, and yours, too, then, Tim, is. Uh, Dan Garrett. I would love what he says when he walks up to a group. He'll say, um, hi, I'm Dan Garrett. I'm a magician. I'm a, or sorry, my name is Dan Garrett. I'm a professional interrupter. How am I doing? <laughs> because correct. obviously he just interrupted this group over here. And then he begins by saying, well, and I also do some magic. Let me show you, you know, hang on to these rubber bands or whatever that it happens to be. Uh, in my <laughs> case, what I do is very much similar to what you do with, but not with rubber bands. I will have a, uh, a sponge rabbit in my hand. And when I see a lady, I'll walk up uh, to uh, two different things. Men and women are completely different. With uh, men, I'll be doing a Hundy 500 because men are interested in, in money. If it's a woman, I'll do something then with the sponge rabbits. And so I'll say, pardon me, ma'am, I noticed from across the room, you had a loose hair on your shoulder and they're looking on their shoulder and I reach over and I look like I'm plucking a hair. And as I do, I just have this little rabbit. And they go, oh, and they, they laugh. And then I, as they're laughing, then I split it in half and I'd be splitting hairs. Oh, you're magicians, just like that. So similar to what you're saying, like with other bands, but it gets them involved in knowing that you're a magician then straight away as well. There's a, mm. a, a guy uh, who, not a magician, but a variety of clown comedian guy who uh, was working a very elaborate event in uh, a very, very rich place in Melbourne here. Uh, this would be 20, 30 years ago, but I never forgot the story. He walked up to a group and they immediately turned, took one look at him and said, perhaps you could go and do your little tricks for that group over there. They look like they might appreciate it. That sounds yeah. like something. In fact, I had a, one of my early podcasts with uh, David Stone. And when people say, what episode would you recommend <laughs> that would get me hooked on listening to the podcast? And without a question, without thinking, I always say David Stone, because it surprised me so much when we were talking, one of the things after he was talking about his career and things that he did and he things he'd accomplished. And I said, what thing do you think you lack? And he said, confidence. And I said, what? And it's because when he was working uh, down in Monte Carlo and he's working at the, these yacht clubs and going around, uh, people would say, hey, come over here. And they give him like a hundred pound note or something or hundred euro and they'll say get away don't don't come to this table we don't want you to see we don't want to see you we don't want to see any magic stay away and of course he's going over there you know thinking hey they like me you know when they're signaling him over but they're just signaling him over to say hey, stay away and it happens so frequently that he was starting to get this complex and 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 losing his confidence interesting i know a lot of people who've been in that situation they weren't paid to stay away a lot i know a lot of people would love to be paid to stay away they're the best <laughs> king in the world but uh, I, I, I a lot that. of people a lot of yeah. people who, who they just go up, the first person they get, they get a rejection. They might even get another rejection. And they're like, I can't do magic for the next month or so. But uh, now it's like you go up to people and you do, you're doing your ambitious card routine. They're like, oh, that was very nice. Uh, what double lift are you using? <laughs> <laughs>
they're much more educated in magic, perhaps a little bit more than we are aware. That's true. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think though, like ultimately, like a lot of it, I think comes, like you said, it comes down to, I think, to our confidence and our self, you know, worth. like it's, it's our self-worth and how we perceive ourselves. Because mm-hmm. the fact is, if you, I mean, like the, the magician, uh, Simon Coronel, who just, you know, won, mm-hmm. uh, what did he win at FISM? The uh, Grand Prix. I think he got most improved or something, I think. <laughs> most improved. <laughs> something like and, and, yeah. Yeah. Hey, Participation award or something. I don't know. I don't pay attention. <laughs> but he, he, we had a conversation once about it. And he said his problem with walk around magic is no matter how good you are, you're always going to ruin at least one person's night. Like there's always going to be one person who they're sitting, they're having a nice conversation and then a magician shows up and everyone, they hate magic and everyone wants to watch magic. And they're like, oh, okay, I guess we're watching magic for the next 10 minutes and they hate it and they don't want to watch it. And then it just puts a dampener on their night. And I think that's, it's very difficult to have that thought in your head that there are people in this room who don't want what I have to offer which is absolutely fine and mm-hmm. impossible to get around. Right. You um, just have to recognize and, that. And to have the confidence to walk up to people and offer a thing that they're going to maybe throw back in your face. Well, that's exactly right. Well, listen, this has been phenomenal. I mean, just uh, we could have gone obviously a lot longer on any one of these uh, different subjects. We had uh, uh, 10 of them there. We could have another 10, I'm sure. But uh, before we close the name of my podcast, as you know, Tim, is the Call the Magic Word podcast. And uh, Nicholas always like to close the show by asking my guests what it is that is their magic phrase. They're not, I don't mean like abracadabra. What is it that is important to you? It is your philosophy of life or your cheese. Tim, you want to? Leave oh, this I, last time I, I last time I was on, I said authenticity, but I want to hear Nicholas's first, and then I'll give you a different one. Yeah, oh, you okay. came up with a better one. Okay, my um, my uh, favorite one is um, it's actually the beginning of my first book, Chasing the Ace, and it's um, uh, Emily Dickinson's poem: "Tell tell all the truth, but tell it slant." I do, in fact, I'll give you the whole poem. It's very short. Tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Success in circuit lies. To bright for our infirm delight, the truth's superb surprise. As lightning to the children eased with explanation kind, the truth must dazzle gradually or every man be blind. And it's like, that's my, that is my philosophy. You've got to tell the truth, but you've got to do it in uh, subtle and interesting ways. Love that. Beat that. All right. <laughs> well, there's, there's no way I can beat that, so I have to go the uh, the once the was a man <laughs> from now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, close to that. <clears throat> I'll, I'll go from the op- the intro of my lecture notes, um, which is Weird Al Yankovic, and I got permission <laughs> from him to use the quote, everything you know is wrong. <laughs> Love it. I love that too. Love both of you guys. Thank you very much for being my guests here today and for uh, the lively conversation. And I uh, hope to get back together with you again in the future. So thanks again. I appreciate it, guys. If other people have myths they want busted, send it to us. Send it to us. That's right. And we will get back together again. We can put together another list. So, yes, if you have some other ideas, some myths you want busted from uh, the magic community, just send it over here to Scott at the magic word podcast.com or just leave your comment then below. So until next time, that was Tim Ellis and Nicholas Johnson. This is Scotty out.
Thank you, Tim, and thank you, Nicholas. It was an enjoyable conversation to discuss these 10 different magic myths. And as was mentioned at the end of the podcast over here, if you have any ideas of things you would like to, uh, whether you have heard of or that you particularly believe that are absolute truths or perhaps might be myths, just send them to me and I'll be glad to uh, put them into a file and we'll see if we can get enough together, perhaps for another future episode. I also want to encourage you, if you're interested in scams and cons and that kind of a thing, go check out Scamapalooza. You can search for that just about any place and find it on whatever is your favorite podcast carrier, whether it's iTunes or whatever else, just like this podcast, just how you found us. I'm sure that you can find Scamapalooza there as well. And you might uh, continue to search Amazon to see if eventually his books are going to be released. Uh, I haven't read them yet, but I think they certainly sound interesting. So uh, just do, again, a search for Nicholas J. Johnson and his books. And perhaps if you happen to come across one, I'd be interested in hearing your review. Perhaps you could leave a short review on the speak pipe feature we have on the website. Again, I want to encourage you to use that if you wish to in order to leave a message or a shout out. And uh, I would be glad then also to share that here uh, on the podcast. And and one last thing, and that is to make sure that everybody does remember that this is the last week for the contest to win a copy of the Modern Trade Show Handbook by Seth Kramer. So be sure to go and enter the contest. And if you are living within the United States, it is postpaid, so it won't cost you anything. And if you are outside the U.S. and your name is randomly selected, then we will calculate whatever the postage is for foreign shipping, and you can elect to pay that or not. And if you don't, then we will draw another name. Anyhow, go and check it out to the website at themagicwordpodcast.com and enter the contest. It's always great when we have one of our guests who offers some of their creations. So I want to thank Seth Kramer again for making that generous offer to the listeners. Well, this has been a rather lengthy episode, so let me just close out by saying, stay well, get booked, and remember, tell the truth but do it in interesting and subtle ways. And remember, too, that everything you know is wrong. (laughs) This is Scotty out.